looking here in the book of Acts, where we've been for the last couple of months, a few months now, where people by the thousands are being liberated from the bondage of sin and coming into a precious relationship with Christ. And as they're doing so, pressure is mounting. As they're doing so, uh, the religious leaders, uh, the ones that I call the creepy religious guys <laughs> in, in Jerusalem, are they are not happy about it. We looked last week where the guys had been arrested for the second time. Um, we looked As we wrapped up, we looked at three different things that were happening in, uh, in, in Jerusalem during this time. And uh, as we've seen, as the, the story has developed, I mean, hopefully you're seeing that these are not like independent messages that are disconnected from the one before. This is a linear, this is a, a, it's a story. It is an unfolding account of what's happening with the birth of the church and what's happening in the hearts and minds of the apostles what's happening in the hearts and the minds of the people and what's happening in the hearts and minds of uh, the religious leaders who were very threatened by what was going on. You see that the apostles, they had refused to allow threats of persecution to silence them. I remember the first time they were arrested, Peter says, you decide um, whether we're going to obey God or men. And the second time they were arrested, he said, he, did, he didn't ask the question. He just said, we're going to obey God, <laughs> not men. Uh, and uh, they weren't happy about it. The other thing that was going on uh, here in Jerusalem is the believers were giving to the common good. And, and that wasn't a disconnected thing where a bunch of people said, hey, that's a good idea. This is something the Holy Spirit indwelling believers, bringing them together to where they were commonly burdened to, to get rid of property, to take their, their, put their money where their mouth was and, and to lay the, 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 resources at the apostles' feet. Why? Because persecution was breaking out already. I mean, these guys barely opened their mouth. And when somebody was baptized into Christ, which was a thing, I mean, we sort of take a loose idea of baptism, but for them, it was believe and they'll get baptized. (laughs) And we see that consistently in the book of Acts. I think there's a great lesson about baptism in that for us, but that's not this morning's message. At any rate, at any rate, when when they did that, they would be ostracized from their families, spouses, uh, children, work, certainly synagogue or temple. I mean, their whole life would essentially, uh, the way that they had lived it, would fall apart. So God, in his miraculous provision, puts it on a great many people's hearts to, to take uh, and to give generously for the common good. And uh, people would, they, and and what that the effect of that was that the people were gaining confidence that they could go forward that they would not lose everything they wouldn't starve if they chose to give their lives to Christ wonderful thing uh, the third thing that we looked at as we wrapped up was that uh, especially considering Ananias and Sapphira how they both dropped dead <laughs> at the apostles' feet after. Uh, pulling the stunt that they did was that a strong fear of God had begun to, to keep hypocrisy uh, in the church from eroding people's newfound faith. And, and God was very clearly allowing these people to see he's serious about sin. He's serious about sin to the point where he sent his son to die for it. He's also serious about sin in the lives of believers to where keeping the body fundamentally pure is a big deal. And so 
uh, people were fearing God, and fearing God not, not in the way of uh, the Old Testament sense of, of <laughs> we've looked at that, we looked at, at, at with the Holy Spirit, you know, when God came down on Sinai, that, that was fear. I mean, they, they were afraid. Uh, the fear that we have is a deep reverence for God, for his holiness. So as we looked at that in the first five chapters, it could be said that uh, the good old days in the first five chapters that the, uh, the people and the apostles had enjoyed uh, were coming to an end. Because through chapter four, if you look at it, the problems the early church had experienced had all come from the outside. They were all problems that were coming at them. Uh, and as persecution from the outside continued to mount, uh, as we saw in chapter 5, the apostles had begun to have to deal with challenges from within, beginning with the internal uh, corruption uh, at the hands of Ananias and Sapphira. So from there, uh, the apostles had continued to, continued to draw huge crowds. The last week we saw that, as I mentioned, they'd been arrested for the second time, but the circumstances surrounding their arrest were different this time than the first uh, the first thing that we see is the religious leaders had not been so quiet about it. <laughs> they were quite out in the open, quite vocal, and very demonstrative. They had made a public show of force uh, as they arrested not just two of the, the apostles, they arrested all 12, <laughs> and they carted them off. Uh, as opposed to the first arrest, they took the, Peter and John to a holding cell, essentially a holding cell there on the Temple Mount, where they could be held overnight because it was late in the day when they were arrested. No, this time they didn't do that. They took them off to the public prison. They threw them in prison. Again, wanting to demonstrate to the people that they were not to be messed with. Uh, the third thing we saw was that at that, that night, an angel of the Lord came in and set them free. And uh, he gave them instructions as well. He said, yeah, setting you free. Now, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. I love the way that that's phrased. And, and exactly, that's exactly what these men were doing. Uh, his words are life. So the men show up at the temple early in the morning. Uh, they begin to teach at the temple. And I talked about how the crowds would have been kind of befuddled about this, like, wait a minute, didn't I see them get carted off? Uh, why are they, <laughs> they they're, it would have been confusing for the crowds, but then I think that they would eventually realize this is another miracle. This is another one of the signs and wonders that they had begun to become accustomed to seeing that man had set these men free, God had. Uh, so at the same time that they are speaking in the temple early in the morning, uh, the high priest calls for a meeting with the Sanhedrin. He says, you know, we need to get together and decide what to do with these guys. He is totally unaware that the men are already down at the temple uh, with this group of people, and, and they're already speaking all the words of this life. So uh, just to, to kind of shortcut through what's going on, uh, they send the captain of the guard down to... Uh, grab the man and bring them before the council so that they can interrogate them. And he comes back and says, the guards were posted right in front. We saw that, I mean, the guards were there. They're standing guard, but we went in and there was nobody home. There was nobody there. So uh, the council is there again. Now they're confused and they're going, what on earth is going on? 
And so they send them in, uh, they, they, word comes to them, they're, they're at the temple and they're doing what we arrested them for yesterday. <laughs> and so they go and they bring the guys in, um, uh, but they were careful. It says that they didn't take them by force. They were not, they were very careful not to be too rough with these guys because they feared the people. Remember, what Acts tells us is that by this time, the apostles and the converts, so they were, they were really popular in Jerusalem. They were really, uh, they, they were held in high regard. They had great grace that was upon them. Uh, it was the people and then the surrounding areas of Judea, uh, that were coming now. I mean, this, this thing was exploding. It was, it was sort of like concentric circles on a pond. You drop a stone in it and pretty soon the waves are going out and they're going out further and further. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen with the Great Commission. So they bring the guys in and, and, and Peter, he begins to speak and he flatly tells them, that we're going to obey God, not you. Uh, and it's clear that these same men, he says, look, and he knew that these were some of the same men that were present at the crucifixion, which had not happened many months before, or had happened not many months before. And so he knew that they were there and he, and he knew, he says, look, you're the ones who murdered the Messiah by hanging him on a tree. Um, and, and he goes on and he says, and, and this same one, God raised up. Now, remember the company that was there, the, the, the council, the Sanhedrin, it was dominated by Sadducees. And Sadducees grated their teeth at any mention of resurrection. They did not believe it. They didn't, they, they, they rejected it. And any mention that they, that God had raised Messiah, that he raised Jesus from the dead, they absolutely rejected. He was also clear as to what God's intentions were through raising Jesus from the dead, that he could give, uh, repentance to Israel and forgiveness for sins. So, I mean, it, it, the old saying comes to mind, what's not to love? I mean, the message, the method that God used, the message that, that he conveyed through it, what's not to love? And yet these guys hated it, and they, they plotted to kill these guys at that point. So at that point, uh, a rabbi named Gamaliel, <laughs> he dismissed the men, and he begins to advise the council, and he says, look, you want to be really careful here in your dealings with these guys, uh, because look, if this movement, this thing that's going on out there uh, that, that is, has been happening in Solomon's portico, that's now expanding through the city and throughout the region, this thing that's going on, if it's not from God, you don't need to worry about it. It will fall apart. He gives two examples of prior insurrections that had fallen apart. So he says, look, don't go weighing in on this thing and get yourself busy with things that are just not going to come to anything anyway. Then he also shares, and we looked at it, uh, if this is from God, by some chance, if this is from God, you don't want to get up some morning and find that you're on the wrong side of him. And uh, so the council, they agreed. They, I mean, they realized at that point that they were kind of in a vice. And, and they really couldn't move on the matter without uh, getting into some serious shape with the circumstances they're dealing with. So they agreed with Gamaliel, and then they called the guys in and they beat them, which is just odd. But they, I believe that they beat them because they had broken their previous command not to go out there and share the gospel. And 
They warn them, again, don't you go speaking in the name of Jesus, like that's going to work. And then they let them go. Totally God's providence in this. Totally God's provision for these men to go out now and to be unhindered out on the Temple Mount, preaching the gospel to the crowds that are now continuing to just expand and, and to grow. I think it's remarkable, too, that as chapter 5 ended, that the men left rejoicing. And they're like, you know, I just picture them like one of them's got a big shiner or a big swollen face or whatever. Isn't it cool that we were counted worthy to suffer for his name and all of that? I mean, they're excited because they got beat up. Because they got beat up in the name of Jesus. And I don't know that I would do that, but that's what they did. And they actually went right back to work. So, all of that takes us to chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in those days, when a number of the number of disciples or learners, that's what disciple is, they're apprentices, not just pupils. When the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, we've talked about this daily distribution. This is something that was ongoing and it was growing. The needs were growing. More people were coming to Christ. More people had great needs. And so they had established these programs through which they would see to it that the people that had needs would be uh, taken care of. So the explosive growth of the church had brought with it some real practical problems that needed to be addressed. So with these huge numbers pouring in, really, folks, I mean, think about that. It's, there's, it's no wonder that conflict arose. People are people. I remember uh, Chuck Smith talking one day about, because they had gone through this explosive growth at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, uh, starting out with 25 people, and now there were thousands, and that they had put up this big, huge circus tent, and that had overflowed, and they rapidly built this huge building with sanctuary, and uh, as they were finishing, they, they put down the carpet in there and, and somebody posted a note on the, the board going into the sanctuary and said, uh, if you're not wearing shoes, don't, you can't go in. And Chuck read, Pastor Chuck read that and, and was not happy. Uh, again, just the, the growth, somebody had taken it upon themselves to say, well, you know, we've got to, we've got to keep this carpet clean <laughs> and all of that. They had a bunch of hippies that were coming in from the beach. And, and so he called the board meeting right after and he said, look, I don't want to know who did this, number one. And number two, if not wearing shoes keeps someone, anyone, not if it keeps one person from coming in here to experience the love of God, the love of Christ. I'm pastoring the wrong church. And, and I just, as I heard that, I just thought, hearty amen. Problems came up as the thing was just exploding and blowing up. That's what's happening here in larger measure because the church has just been birthed. And so now they're trying to take care of the things that are going on. They're trying to accommodate this growth and it's tough. So in this, in this case, there was grumbling among the Hellenists towards the Hebrews because they felt that their widows were, weren't receiving a fair share of the resources that were being distributed. So as we see here, the, the strife between these two now Messianic Jewish groups, uh, it wasn't automatically eliminated by their conversion to Christianity. Uh, the complaint concerning the food distribution demonstrates that. Uh, people, as again, people are people. Sinners saved by grace. Uh, 
Very often, as we submit to God's will in our lives, he's cleaning up areas. I've warned you guys many times, don't think that you know God's agenda for the person sitting next to you. He is in the work of sanctifying us. And as he does that sanctifying work, he has an agenda for me, perfectly fitted for me. He also has an agenda for you. And I might see some glaring fault in you. This is easier to see your sins than mine. But I, I may observe something about someone and, and think, wow, you know, that's really out of line or that's out of whack or that's just wrong or whatever. You gotta give room for the grace of God. You gotta give room for God's sanctifying hand to be at work. You don't know what he's doing in that person. Be gracious. The answer, the answer to all of it is grace. I think it's also worth mentioning here at this point in the book of Acts, Satan's attacks on the church, they had come in a lot of different ways already. Uh, they had come through direct opposition. We've seen that. These, the, the leaders had opposed these guys directly. Come through intimidation. First time they arrested the men, they were trying to intimidate them. The second time they were trying to intimidate the crowds. Uh, come through incarceration. <laughs> these guys, all right, you better clean it up or we're throwing you in the, in the clink. And, and that's what they were doing. It also been experiencing corruption from within. Now, Satan's tactic changes. Now what he's going to do is he's going to try to divide and conquer. He's going to attempt to turn one group of Christians against another. Uh, folks, this, <laughs> I got to say, you know, the, the people and the circumstances change, but the enemy's playbook has remained exactly the same down through the ages. Uh, I'll tell you what, guard yourself, guard your heart. The temptation to become offended with another is at times very strong. And, and, and to be very truthful at times, <laughs> it's well-founded because we are sinful people dealing with sinful people. But I want to encourage you to get out of the habit of, of looking uh, at the offense and you get into the habit of looking beyond the offense to the big picture. Folks, it's just so important to maintain unity that we have to have room for others. We have to have grace for others. Sometimes there are legitimate needs that, be, that need to be addressed. And that's what's going on here with the Hellenists. The other thing about that is, is look at the fact that, that you don't always have all the information. You don't know what challenges somebody might be facing. You know, many times over the years, I would go and I would see somebody's face just downcast. Or someone came off as, as ignoring me. And the enemy's right there to speak into my ear. Yeah, they're just being a sourpuss or this or that or the other. And, and, and then I'll come to find out that there was a death in their family or there was a, a significant challenge or whatever. Be careful you don't know what's happening in somebody else's life. And what might appear offensive on the outside may not be. And it may be because, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm grumpy. And, and, I, and I take that to the Lord. It's, but it's true. Got to watch out for our perceptions. So let's go here. Let's identify these two groups that Luke's talking about. He's talking about the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So the first is there were those Jews that were native to Israel. And they remained... 
in and around Jerusalem and the surrounding area. They spoke the Hebrew language. Now, it wasn't really Hebrew. It was actually a Syrian dialect that closely resembled Hebrew called the Aramaic. Uh, that was the language of the day. Uh, these guys, they had access to the temple and they were, they were the locals. And they're appropriately known here as the Hebrews. The other group, uh, the Hellenists, uh, that consisted of Jews from the Gentile nations, from other parts of the empire. Uh, and there were people who spoke Greek. Uh, they studied even the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And they were called Hellenists. And that's from a Greek word, or from a word meaning Greek or Greek speaking. To be Hellenized was to embrace Greek culture, uh, Greek thought, Greek ideas, and all of that. Now, King Herod, Herod the Great, he spent a great deal of time and energy Hellenizing Palestine. Uh, he wanted to bring Greek influence into that region, and, and he spent a, a lot of time doing it. There's a, and I won't get into it, but there's a, a man-made mountain about eight miles south of Jerusalem called Herodian, and it is a tribute. It's, it's Herod's tribute. It's where his body was found. His grave was found not many years ago, just in the last few years. At any rate, it's, it's this, I remember standing there looking and seeing this very symmetrical mountain. It was a big, big mountain, big, large hill, uh, and, and wondering what on earth is that? Uh, and then we traveled down to it, toured it and all that. But, uh, Herodian is, is, it's a tribute to Hellenism in Israel. Uh, so anyway, he had done a lot of work. And the point is, is that there was ongoing friction between these two groups, uh, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Uh, the Palestinian or, or Hebrew Jews prided themselves on the fact that they'd always lived in the land uh, and, and that they lived in the land of the patriarchs, by the way. <laughs> and uh, they used the language that their fathers spoke and they were near the temple and they actually kind of thought that they had greater right to the temple than these other guys. Uh, on the other hand, the Hellenistic Jews from other parts of the world were jealous uh, of the first group, and they were made to feel like outsiders. So to oversimplify what's going on here, the Hebrews tended to regard the Hellenists as unspiritual <laughs> compromisers with Greek culture. And the Hellenists regarded the Hebrews as kind of holier than thou, and that they were traditionalists. So... Uh, in all of that, there's, there's enmity, there's hostility between these two groups. And they had not, this is not a new thing, but now they've both converted to Christianity. Now they're Messianic Jews, but that enmity, that undercurrent of, of not getting along has come with them. So the Bible doesn't tell us whether the issue with the widows was a perceived problem or an actual problem. But we know from chapter 4, and again here in chapter 6, that the apostles themselves, they were still overseeing the daily distributions. Remember, the church is exploding at this point. The believers, the amount of, the number of believers that were coming was in the multitudes, we're told. I mean, huge crowds of people. And these guys are still trying to manage it. Um, it could have been because of the, the, the Hebrews having that false sense of spiritual superiority. Could have been the Hellenists being hypersensitive because of their past tensions. It could have been, truly, it could have been the apostles' workload just had steadily increased to the point where it was now becoming impossible 
to see to every need and that they had overlooked the widows. We don't know. But we do know this. In a powerful example, as we're going to see here, of godly wisdom, Christian unity, uh, the early church would work through this dispute. And as a result, uh, we would see the office of what we know as deacons would be born. Uh, But I I want to be careful with that. Uh, The word simply means servant. Uh, And I want to note, too, that nowhere in this chapter, uh, in Acts chapter 6, are these men called deacons. But, 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 most consider that they were the first to fulfill the office of deacon, as Paul describes in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, the Greek word is diakonos uh, for this, and it's the same word that's used here for the word distribution and also the word ministry. Distribution in in chapter 6, verse 1, and ministry in verse 4. It's the same word. Uh, And the idea behind the word in both places is that of servanthood. These men were called to serve, whether they were called to serve in practical ways or spiritual ways. The emphasis that God's word puts on this is servanthood. I want to make that clear. We're not talking about uh, organizing the church into offices at this point. I don't believe that that was their intent. I think their intent was to raise servants up, to raise men up to serve that could stand in the gap and take care of these needs that were not being adequately addressed. Verse 2, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, I want to clear up a popular misinterpretation of verse 2. We automatically assume that serving tables means that they were waiters. (laughs) And that's not what's being said. They didn't work at the diner. (laughs) There was more going on here. And and the word actually uh, means something pretty different than them putting on an apron and going and serving food. Uh, When the apostles talked about leaving the word of God to serve tables, the idea is that of handling the finances that were connected with the daily distribution. Remember, when Jesus went over and he turned over the tables of the money changers, okay? Same word, same concept, same idea. This is a, it's a, it's an idiom in their culture that meant management. It meant people that were managing the money. So these guys, these deacons are selected to oversee the distribution of the money and the provisions for the needy uh, in their fellowship. So a literal translation of verse two is, it is not fitting that we should neglect the word of God to be occupied with the distribution of food. Uh, the, the serving tables is... Unfortunately, in our culture, we immediately connect that with being a waiter. and That's not what they were. So another thing about this is some people would look at this as being kind of arrogant on the apostles' behalf or hierarchical. They're establishing a hierarchy in the church. And that's just not so. That's not indicated in the text at all. Uh, this is a very, it's a practical statement by the apostles because Theirs was, they needed to, to remain true to, this, to serving God through their primary calling. These guys were not called to serve tables. They were not called to manage the funds. We see that up until this point, they are, but they're getting busier all the time. Uh, and, and folks, I, I have to say to you, I, you know, there's a real practical application to this. Uh, 
I don't have any problem coming down here uh, and moving trash cans around in the in the parking lot or picking up trash in front of the church, I, <laughs> setting up tables for the men's group or for the women's study <clears throat> when I remember, which I often don't. Don't. Uh, this morning, I, I grabbed a ruler or a yardstick. We have a couple of yardsticks behind the coffee bar because the way my brain is wired, when I look at the chairs, if I see two rows that are a little off kilter, it it just really kind of makes me nuts inside. <laughs> it's, it's like, I got to fix that thing. I have, a, I have a great eye for symmetry. And when that's not happening, and on this wooden floor, the chairs get out of whack real easily. So they tease me because I get that yardstick in my hand. They know I'm on a mission. <laughs> and uh, I've got to stick those chairs in the proper place. And that's it. Uh, I, Doug started setting up the chairs over here. And I came over and I said, Doug, this measurement's wrong. <laughs> So we got it, got it worked out. Anyway, I don't have any problem doing those things. I, I, and in a small church, the pastor wears a lot of hats. I mean, that's just how it is. As a matter of fact, it would be really, it would be very wrong if I thought that somehow I was above that. Uh, to take a hierarchical view to serving God, I think is unbiblical. I think that's arrogant. And I think it's wrong. However, it's not my primary calling. My primary calling is to tend to and to feed the flock of God in praying for you and ministering God's word to you. That's what God has called me primarily to do. Again, I have no problem doing the other stuff. I mean, that's just, it's just stuff that needs to be done. If you see it and it needs to be done, then do it. That's kind of my attitude. Um, I'm okay with that. Verse three, he says, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So the apostles, now they're enlisting the congregation's help. Uh, and no, this is not the first example, example of congregational rule in a church because they do not allow the people to do the appointing. They allow the people to, to confer among themselves and see who among them is qualified. Uh, and, and they're looking for seven men. And the qualifications that they set forth were first, they needed to be men of good reputation. And they likely looked for men of good reputation from both groups, both from the Hebrews and the Hellenists. They're not looking through that lens. Uh, they're not looking through the lens of, well, they're more qualified if they're Hebrews or they're more qualified if... No, they're not doing that. I think that they just wanted to find men who were qualified, who had a good reputation. The next thing they were looking for is men who were spiritually minded uh, and being full of the Holy Spirit. These guys were going to be ministering in a potentially divisive divisive environment. Uh, They wanted guys that were plugged in to the the ministry, the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives personally. Because these were important matters. And if they were not handled right, not handled properly, this could explode. This could blow up in their face and they could have a real mess on their hands. The next thing that they wanted, that they looked for, is they wanted men who were practically minded, uh, who were equipped to manage the financial matters of this ministry. So they're they're, they're looking for all three of those. And that's what they state when they say, look, we're we're looking for seven men. They have a good reputation and who are full of the spirit and also are very practical. Now, we're also not told here, what's not being said is why they sought seven men. Uh, you know, I, I read a bunch of stuff. I, I study a lot of different sources when I'm preparing a study. And some of the people were saying, well, this is an ancient Hebrew 
uh, business practice. The number seven was significant in their business affairs. And saying, eh, well, whatever. Um, what I think is the most practical is they were wanting to have one man that would oversee it for every day of the week. <laughs> and that pretty well covered it. I don't know. Um, I want to notice also that the apostles had appealed. Again, they appealed to the people. They wanted the people to nominate. But again, the decision would rest with them in appointing them. So I mentioned too, I don't really don't think that the apostles set out to create a formal office that would become a, a permanent part of church government here. Uh, they just wanted to, they were just trying to meet the need and relying on the Lord in prayer and then carrying out this request. But they left us some great instruction uh, and a great example through which they showed the church how to respond when these kind of needs arise. And there are very practical needs that arise in a church. So regardless, a structure involving elders and deacons was beginning to emerge. Remember, this is very, very early in, in the infancy of the church. And as we see, up until now, the apostles had been handling everything. And now they're beginning to delegate. They're beginning to, to entrust these things, as Paul would tell Timothy, entrust these things to faithful men. Uh, that would come later, but here we're seeing structure and organization begin to emerge. Now, <laughs> I gotta say, uh, something that, that makes me a little wonky when I hear it is that people talk about organized religion. And it's like, oh please, and yeah, I get, the, the, I, you can organize God right out of the thing. You can, you can get so organized that you no longer are, is the life of the church the Holy Spirit, but the life of the church is now the organization. I get that. But there's nothing wrong with spirit-guided, spirit-directed organization. You gotta have it. I love that that we have spirit-filled elders that uh, have have your best at heart, that pray for our church, that pray for direction, that come alongside me as I endeavor to lead, and they are also equipped to do the same. They're, they're able to teach all of that as part of our organization. And there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I believe God ordains it. So the other thing about this is that later on, the Apostle Paul, I mean, he's still, <laughs> he's still a heathen Pharisee at this point, uh, and we'll see him show up towards the end of chapter 7 for the first time. But he would go on and, and actually use the same model. Uh, further in the book of Acts, also in his letters, he talks about elders and deacons. He talks about men who are called to, to spiritual oversight with the church and men who are called to exercise practical oversight in the matters of the church as well. So verse four, he says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. <clears throat> so here the apostles announced what they consider to be their, their greatest priorities. They're essentially saying, look, this is what God has called us to do. Uh, yeah, they didn't have a problem. Again, they didn't have a problem of overseeing the food ministry and all of that. But their, the order given that they gave, I think, is significant as well. They said, first, we're going to pray. We're going to be men of prayer. Second, we're going to minister God's word to you. And we know from Acts chapter 2 that that, from the very beginning moments of the church, that that was the, what they were charged to do that they would minister the word, 
the teachings of the apostles would be a thing that would be part of how they organized. I also think this is a critical dynamic in ministry today. It's an under, underpinning with anybody who endeavors to teach the word of God. Uh, folks, every time, and I mean every time I sit down to prepare a message, uh, all through my preparation, the prayer of my heart is for God to show up. Lord, I need your touch. I need the gift of discernment. There, I, I sift through a lot, as I mentioned, a lot of information in working on just one hour's worth of study. And, and I, it's like, Lord, I need you to show me what it is you want me to give to your people. I need your touch. I need you to show up here with me. I also need you to show up there with them because I pray that God's anointing would not just be on speaking the message, but that it would be upon you as you hear the message. Because only then is the transforming work of the gospel going to come into play in your life. It's critical. Um, that's why I often pray, Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Uh, why I pray, Lord, you, you, Jesus, you tell us uh, in the Gospel of John, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. There's also another aspect of prayer that's that of interceding for you. And it's something that I take, again, I take seriously. Sometimes it's with knowledge of what's going on in your lives. Um, many share at times different things. But there are also times where I'm just simply burdened to pray. I'll be sitting at my desk or in bed or whatever, and somebody will, will just come into my mind. And I'll find myself just praying for them. So the point in this is the apostles considered these two activities to be foundational to everything else that was happening. Everything else was secondary. It was important, but their primary calling was prayer and the ministry of the word. And that's a great model for the church today. Verse five, and the saying pleased uh, the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So it makes sense. If you look at the, the names here, these are Greek names. <laughs> that six of these new deacons, they're Hellenistic Jews. Uh, the seventh is a Gentile proselyte. Now a proselyte is somebody that had converted to Judaism. You know, and if a Gentile, he converted from pagan whatever to Judaism. And now he had converted again to Christianity. So uh, that's the group of men that God raises up. And now two of these guys that are mentioned here, Stephen and Philip, they'll have a prominent and significant role in the book of Acts. Stephen's role will begin here. And, and it does not last long. Uh, and I love, and, and Bill's picking up, by the way, where we're leaving, where I'm leaving off today. I, I uh, talked to him about, he's going to be picking up in the book of Acts, right where I'm leaving off. So that, this study will continue. Um, he wrote me yesterday and asked where I was at. and Back and forth on that. But Stephen's role begins here. This is the first time that we see him mentioned. And it'll be prominent uh, next week. It's right into Stephen. And oh my goodness, talk about spirit-filled, anointed speaking. When he reviews Israel's history in front of the creepy religious guys, that, I mean, to the point where they 
want to and then do kill him. Um, he'll end up being the first Christian on record to be executed and martyred for his faith. Now also Philip, he's the other guy that, that comes out as prominent here. And, and he is very prominent throughout the book of Acts, especially in chapter 8. At chapter 8 is, is all about what's going on with Philip and how God is using him. Uh, he's the most often mentioned of the deacons and he'll go on to be greatly used. Um, now, it's so just to give you a little review on, on Philip's life and ministry, after Saul, what happens is that when Stephen is executed, that triggers the first great persecution of the church. I mean, yeah, these guys are being picked on now, but they will be fully persecuted at that point. Uh, Saul, this man, he went and got letters from the council in Jerusalem, and he set out, he was a man on a mission, and he wanted to round up and, and kill or imprison as many Christians as he could. Um, what happens then is as Saul begins to persecute the church, is people begin to bail out of Jerusalem. They're like, whoa, it's too hot here. It's, there's too much going on here. And so they begin to bail, and they go traveling to other parts of the empire, and guess what happens then? Christianity now explodes over the known world. I mean, this is totally by God's design. God will use Stephen's martyrdom for his glory. Uh, Philip, he ends up being the first guy uh, that would go and preach the gospel, at least the first one on record, to preach in Samaria. Now, Israel was divided into Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, where the apostles were from, most of them. Uh, so there's these three sections. So the area just north of Judea was Samaria. Now remember, Jesus had said, you'll first start in Jerusalem and then you'll go to Judea and then to Samaria. And by the time you're well into the book of Acts, the apostle Paul is going all over to the ends of the earth. So this is the great commission that Jesus forecast that he prophesied being carried out. Philip also has a part in the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch that's on the road. Uh, uh, He's going to Gaza, traveling from Judea. And Philip goes and he shares the gospel with him. There's a great story there. Uh, And as time went by, Philip, he would move up the coastline to Caesarea Maritima. Uh, And he had four daughters. They were prophetesses by that time. And that's where he would, in Acts chapter 21... Uh, he would meet a guy by the name of Paul, uh, formerly Saul of Tarsus, now Paul the Apostle, as he returned from his third missionary journey. In Acts 21.8, uh, we read, On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, one who was one of the seven. What do you mean? That's the seven that are chosen here in Acts chapter 6. He's here... And so he's clearly identified, and we stayed with him. So uh, we're told here, too, uh, in verse 6, that as these seven men were set before the apostles, when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And I think that that's significant, guys. Laying hands on these men was important. Uh, Although their ministry was very practical in nature, you're just going to oversee managing this food distribution. It's still spiritual service. And there's something to be said about laying hands on someone to convey the ministry to them that God has called them to. 
We also see another pattern here, which has continued with the church down through the ages to this day. Now, it's true, (laughs) our lives are being transformed, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, from glory to glory, we are growing, all of us. The apostles did not, they didn't get out and announce to the crowd, we want to find seven men who we can teach to be deacons. We want to send them to deacon school. (laughs) It's not what they did. They didn't ask for men who would at some point become spiritually or practically minded. They're looking for men who already have these qualities and who were growing in them. And folks, over the years, I've learned the value of waiting and watching. When I have a mind towards raising someone up for spiritual, for church leadership, it's important. I'm looking for people who are already doing the work. Uh, is so important. It's, it's, nobody, I became an elder back in the 80s of a church after I came out of Bible school and all that uh, because my pastor and the other guys around said, John's already doing the work of an elder. Let's put our hands, our, our amen to what God is doing. When I was ordained into the pastorate, it was, let's put our hands to what God is already doing. That's what they're doing here. The apostles are putting, that's why they appealed to these, to the people and said, we want men who are already exhibiting these characteristics in their lives. And that doesn't mean that many others wouldn't qualify or uh, either now or sometime in the future. (laughs) But they were looking for men whose call, the call that was on their lives presently was they were called to serve. And, And that's a beautiful thing. I remember a pastor, um, he was my pastor for a short time when I first got to Gridley, a guy by the name of Leo Giovanetti, uh, pretty well known in Calvary Chapel circles and now. Um, anyway, uh, I got to this church in like two weeks, and it was so tense in this church. I was like, he's a great musician. The guy just banged on the piano. It's wonderful and a good pastor. I mean, I really liked him and all that. It's like I walked in and there was just the tension was so thick you could cut it. And and about two weeks after I got there, about half or two thirds of the church left. They had they were in the middle of a church split, and I'm like, oh, this is fun. And, And. I remember, and Leo was devastated. I mean, he, he loved the people and it was his best friends and, and it was over some silly thing at a salad bar or some ridiculous, I don't remember. But I mean, it was, it was over some trivial thing. And, and, and I remember years later, he was at a, a conference and he was speaking and, and he was talking about that time and I had witnessed what was going on. I was going over to his house for dinner and we were going up to a Bible study and stuff together and all that. And... Um, he said, I was going before the Lord and I'm going, well, Lord, yeah, these guys, yeah, they were better teachers than me. And these guys, they were more organized than me. I'm a musician. I kind of have a musician's mind and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was going down the list of how these guys were more qualified than him. He said, and the Lord spoke to my heart and I've never forgotten this. He said, the Lord said, yeah, that might be right. Maybe not. But the point is I didn't call them. I called you. And at that point, he was released from the stress of these terrible things that had happened in his ministry. He went on to pastor a very large church in San Diego. And I don't know if he's retired at this point or not. But the point is, is that it's all about the call of God, being called to serve. And there's a call in all of our lives. We'll get to that. So it's not about looking for perfection. 
It's about looking for the call of God. And that's what the apostles are doing here. Um, Many people would have qualified in that crowd. So under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they were trusting in the process. And these seven men had come to the front. They they came to the, the, the forefront. And they were the ones that the apostles laid hands on and began to use. Verse 7, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. That's exciting. Now the creepy religious guys are not so creepy. (laughs) I mean, the, the, the guys that had held a hard line against them, the priests, I mean, you look at the book of Acts up until now, the priests are on the other side of the fence. I mean, they are on the other side of these things and they are not for the apostles. And now the the power of God is reaching their hearts, converting these priests. Luke concludes this section here by noting that the church continued to grow. They'd handled the thing with the widows and with the food distribution and all of that. And folks, what had started out as a problem in verse one, hey, you... The Hebrews are neglecting the Hellenists and the Hellenists are complaining that the widows are not getting fed. Well, what started out as a problem, it ended up being used by God to make the church even stronger and more effective. They were learning what it was to delegate authority, to delegate responsibility, to handle the huge needs that were beginning to come up because these people were not just being led to Christ, now they're being discipled. The number of people becoming disciples was surging. It was a rate that became overwhelming. I want to I want to point something out here too. Uh, it's interesting that Luke chose not to use the title disciple in the first five chapters of this book. He doesn't use disciple. This is where it shows up. Um, now in chapter six, he's in the first seven verses. He's used the word disciple three times. He'd previously talked about, he'd used terms such as multitude or church or believers. But here, he begins to use the term disciple. And that's something that's found pretty frequently in the Gospels. Now, over the remainder of the book of Acts, he'll go on to use this word 28 times. Because it's not just about conversion. It's about discipleship. And I think there's something else here too. By intentionally using the word disciples... Luke is giving an assurance that even though massive numbers are pouring into the church, that that people are coming again by the thousands, that the personal care which was taking place with each individual believer would not be diminished. Why? Because people were becoming true disciples of Christ. How's it going? Being a disciple, being a pupil, being a learner, being an apprentice of our master. Now I mentioned earlier too, that Satan's plan had been to divide and conquer and to bring division within their ranks. Then as these guys dealt with the issue of the widows, the word of God had spread as a result and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Uh, And considering all that could have gone wrong as Satan tried to attack through causing discord and division, every side that we see here in this rallies together under the, the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit and every one of them does the right thing. I'm going to look at each group. Those with the complaint, the Hellenists, they did the right thing. 
They'd been vocal about the widow's needs and instead of murmuring and whining or starting a big gossip thing, they took the situation to the church. And that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. Healthy churches deal with problems. They don't sweep them under the rug. The offending party, the Hebrews, did the right thing also. Rather than get their back up because they perceived that this was an attack from those creepy Hellenists, and they could have, they recognized the Hellenists had a legitimate concern. And they appealed to the apostles for help. They wanted direction. The seven men that were chosen did the right thing. They accepted God's call to service. Most of them, I mean, we've talked about two, most of them would remain in the background and faithfully carry out that which God had set before them to do. Most of them we don't hear about again. Yeah, Stephen, Philip are noteworthy in that sense. But folks, very often ministry is carried out and, and there's no glamour. There's no notoriety. There's no fame associated with it. Yeah, I, I know some guys that are well-known. Got a uh, voicemail right before church, a couple from Calvary Modesto. Uh, a friend Damien pastors that. Uh, great guy. At any rate, um, they, some guys are well-known, but it's not about that. It's not about fame. It's not about being uh, known. It's, it's about faithfulness. I would, I just love the fact that God doesn't look at that. He doesn't look at how big and, and how bold and how much better are you than the next guy. He says, are you faithful in what I've called you to do? Are you simply being faithful as a housewife? Are you being faithful as a mom or a dad? Are you being faithful at work? Are you being faithful with your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's where the value is. The apostles did the right thing also. They prayerfully and thoughtfully responded to the need without distracting themselves from fulfilling the ministry of prayer and teaching that God had given them. They dealt with it. They didn't resist it. They didn't avoid it. They didn't look at it as being below them. They jumped in and they sought the Lord and they came up with a solution that worked. What could have been a disaster for the early church turned into a total blessing. Not only were the widow's needs met, now there was necessary infrastructure that was put in place within the church to meet the increasing needs of the people. Now they had the ability to handle aspects of discipleship. The apostles could no longer do it anymore. They could not do it. And as the church began to meet in homes, we saw that at the end of chapter five, as now it's branching out, it's not just the that you could call them evangelistic rallies in Solomon's portico, not just the evangelizing that's going on, it's getting people grounded in the word of God, it's getting people to where now they're beginning to be discipled, they're beginning to be educated in the things of God, in the kingdom of God, looking at understanding the king and the kingdom. Now there's infrastructure in place and men, faithful men are being raised up, men who are called to serve. You know, I, I avoid, and, and something you probably won't see around here is using the term deacon. Yeah, it's a Greek word, and, and it's there, and it is, it's a legitimate office in the church. But as I mentioned, it's not found, that word's not found here in Acts chapter 6. But the word for servant is. Yeah, I think that there are some titles that people need to know. I think people need to know who their pastor is, <laughs> obviously, as a resource. 
I like people to know who our elders are because I want those elders to be identified as a resource when somebody needs prayer or they're up against it somehow and they need to reach out. Deacons, we probably won't ever have a board of deacons. And, and we, if we do, it'll be to, to kind of quietly organize so that we take care of things. But we have a lot of servants and people with servants' hearts in this church. And that's important. And it's a blessing to see people step into being used to serve. So this is the beginning of God raising up faithful men and women as servants in the church. That's what we see here in Acts 6. And it's something that has gone on to this day. At times, there would be great cost. But always, I underscore always, there would be great privilege and blessing to those who respond. And that's the same today. Verse 8, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, Stephen is seen here manifesting the same miraculous power as the apostles had. That's the signs and wonders. Now, the word wonder is the Greek word teras. Now, the, the word for signs is from the word simeon. And let me explain what those are. Now, a wonder is a miracle that reveals a hidden truth, okay? You see signs and wonders a lot. A wonder, and a wonder is a miracle that reveals something that was not previously revealed. A sign identifies the miracle worker as God's messenger. That's why when Jesus said, this generation seeks after a sign and none shall be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. You want to know if I'm Messiah? Wait till I die and I come back in three days. Who was three days in the belly of the fish? That's what Jesus was saying. They wanted a sign. They wanted to know if he was the messenger. And he said, wait and see. So we see here as Stephen steps onto the scene that the divine protection that God had given the early church in Jerusalem, is, it's eroding. Um, they were, their environment was becoming exceedingly dangerous. Jewish leadership had arrested the apostles twice. The next one who would appear before the council would be Stephen and things would not go well. Yet, Jesus had taught the apostles to expect persecution. It's reasonable to assume that they now in turn pass the same warning on to these new Christians. Stephen's opponents would grow into a mob that would turn and drive him out into the city and kill him, stone him. That would set in motion, as I mentioned, the first major persecution that we see in the early church, that God would use it. He would use that as the people scattered, the gospel scattered with them. And as a result, Jesus' followers and the message would continue to spread far beyond the borders of Palestine, all over the known world. So as we wrap up, uh, we're running a little bit late, so we're not going to do a last song, but uh, we're gonna, we are going to come to the Lord's table here in a moment. Uh, I want to apply this. Galatians 5.13 says this. The Apostle Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty... Only don't turn your liberty, uh, don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. It could be said that if you're loving others, you're already in a posture of serving because serving is loving. A person who serves is aware uh, that serving is the opposite of that which comes naturally to us. I don't know about you, but I know me and I know that I can be very selfish And that will block any aspect of servanthood that God wants to manifest in my heart and my life. This is a person who's counted the cost. 
more concerned about meeting the needs of others than their own. We see that. That shows up here. As they're now trying to meet the needs of these widows, they're, trying to, they're saying, look, they're slipping through the cracks. We need to address this. Folks, every one of us is called to serve. This isn't just limited to a few. What is God showing you? And it might be in the church. It might be at home. It might be on the job. It might be with your family. Who knows? I mean, ways to serve are too numerous to list. Have you counted the cost? What's it going to cost you in serving the Lord? Is it going to cost you your time, resources, personal comfort, convenience? Here's a principle. In Acts chapter 20, when the Apostle Paul was tearfully saying goodbye to the elders that, that he had met in Miletus from the church at Ephesus, he had these final words to say to them about serving God. Acts 20 verse 35 says this. It says, uh, Paul speaking here, I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. As I mentioned, the ways in which we can serve, they're just too numerous to list. I mean, God presses us to serve him in different ways. But it's important to understand that we're called to serve. And as we do that, the blessing is ours. It is more blessed to give, to give myself away than it is to receive. It's easier to serve than it is to be served. And for most of us, that kind of drives us a little nutty when people want to, they want to come alongside and begin to serve us. It's like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. No. And I just become accustomed to, you know, I might throw up an objection but I've also said many times to people as I've become more, I guess, understanding of what it is, is that there is a blessing in giving ourselves away. There is a blessing in spirit-directed, spirit-led service. I don't want to block that blessing in the life of another. And so my advice to you is if somebody wants to serve you, receive it. Let them have the blessing because there is a blessing there. And yeah, the motive of my heart when I go to serve other people, is not, I want the blessing and so I'm going to do this. No, it's because I love them and I want to be obedient to what God's showing me to do. However, I have never come away, not, I have not one time in, in the nearly 40 years of serving the Lord where I have been engaged in an aspect of service and felt like it cost me more than what that particular act of service provided for someone else. That's a spiritual dynamic that I don't fully understand, but I'm telling you it's true. 